This teaching comes to you from the team at St Mark's Darling Point, Sydney. We hope that it blesses you. Father, you sent your spirit to inspire the scriptures. Send your spirit to us as we think of them, that we will hear your voice, see you more clearly, be inspired to follow you more closely. In Jesus' name, amen. Thirty years ago uh, in England, I met Gunther, who'd been born in Germany, but who lost both his parents in the war. His future as an orphan in post-war Germany was particularly bleak. And an English soldier took pity on this teenager, brought him back to England, fostered him and gave him every opportunity. Gunther took his chances, followed his foster father's urgings, worked hard, started a business, a carpet uh, selling and laying business. It became very profitable and he became, in fact, possibly the wealthiest person in this pretty well-off village that, uh, of 3,000 people that we were both living in at the time. Gunther had received great grace and then followed his grace-giver's plans. And giver and receiver were both delighted. In 1972, Gough Whitlam became our Prime Minister and he, after his party had been in opposition for 23 years. In his first year as leader, Money was allocated to scores of projects um, that his party felt had been neglected for years and years. Now, one was the Woolgulga All Blacks Rugby League Club on the New South Wales North Coast. The facilities at the ground of this Aboriginal team were substandard and they got a grant to build some decent dressing sheds, proper showers and some sheltered seating for some of the spectators. This was 1972. Who then had ever heard of a government giving good money to a group of Aboriginals for anything? Nobody. It sent a huge message to the Aboriginal community. You guys belong. You matter. We want to help. And the excitement at the receiving end was huge. Everybody is welcome barbecue was organised at the ground. And everybody did come. They were so amazed. And they kept coming and coming, and coming, so much so that the barbecue lasted one whole fabulous week until the whole dressing shed grant had been used up on the barbecue. <laughs> but they still talk about it. The club had received great grace, but the excitement it caused drowned out the benefactor's expectations. So in life, sometimes great grace is followed by the receiver delighting the giver and sometimes it is not followed by the receiver delighting the giver. Now this is uh, an issue in today's chapter 19 of Exodus and it's an issue that faces each one of us. Moses Hebrews had received grace vastly greater than either Jung Gunther in 1945 or the Woolgulga All Blacks in 1972 because after copying several centuries of often vicious slavery in Egypt, including at least one effort at genocide, the Hebrews had been saved en masse after a series of ten more, more and more excruciating plagues that hammered the whole Egyptian nation. 
And then God got them through the Red Sea and removed the threat of the Egyptians enslaving them again. They were free. God had saved them. And even today, over 3,000 years later, the annual celebration of this event, the Passover, is still the biggest day in the Jewish year all over the world. God had saved them. What grace. However, of course, <clears throat> the life of freed slaves can be very hard. As in the United States after the Civil War, so in the Arabian Desert where Moses was now leading them. After the Red Sea crossing, things were great at the start. Moses' sister Miriam sang to all the women who were with tambourines and dancing, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. God saves. But now they discover God also provides. When water was short, he led them first to an oasis and later to a porous rock which easily gave up its water when they were told how to milk it. When their food supplies ran low, God moved them on into a new area where, as the dew rose each morning, they gathered a flaky bread-like deposit that they called manna. And where, as the sun set each evening, they caught the migrating quail as they landed for the night. God's grace had set them free, and now his provision was keeping them alive. What grace! What a demonstration of his promise to bless and preserve them. Indeed, amazing grace. Now, of course, sometimes great grace is followed by the receiver delighting the giver, and sometimes it is not. Which option would the Israelites take? Would they fulfil their grace giver's purpose for them, like Gunther in his new country, or would they miss the point, like the football club? God had shown them his love and his power. Now he made clear what he expected from them in return. God sent his message to the Israelites through Moses. You've seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings. Now, therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession." Moses set before the elders of the people all the words that the Lord had commanded, and they answered as one, Everything the Lord has spoken, we will do. Great response. So clear, so certain, but sadly so fragile. By asking the question and requiring an answer, God is making sure that the people he has saved and preserved do in fact know what is now expected of them, and they also know that this is what they have gone on and promised. No room left for ignorance or indeed for indifference. Well then, what did God, this great grace giver, want from these people whom he had saved and provisioned? He says to them in verse 6, You shall be for me a holy nation. And you can sort of see them hear them saying, yep, that's us, fine, count us in, whatever you say. But it may well be that they did not really understand what they were promising to be a holy nation, obeying everything that God has required them to do. 
it is not an uncommon human frailty that we say something and think we understand it and think we mean it, but when really we're well away from that position. And maybe that's where the Israelites were. All professional rugby league players in the NRL are lectured about what is and what is not acceptable behaviour. They are informed that the sponsors who contribute a big slice of their wages will not tolerate misbehaviour. This has been the score now for quite a number of years. It is almost a formal part of their introduction. They go to lectures, they sign documents, they know they must behave well, they engage in discussions and role plays, and so it goes on. But despite this, across our recent summer, out of the 500 or so professional players in the 16 clubs, there's about 10 of them have behaved either viciously or stupidly in either domestic or alcohol fueled situations. Now, as their season is starting this weekend, some of them are sitting on the sideline, unpaid, uncertain, in disgrace, because they've been accused of bashing a partner or bringing their game into disrepute. They have made serious undertakings, but then had forgotten them. Absolutely. Somehow, it just had not sunk in. How human. Were Moses' Israelites paying more attention to their undertakings than it seems some of our footballers do? Well, the indications so far have not been all that encouraging. But just first of all, what is involved in being a holy nation? What does holy mean? The rock-bottom foundation meaning of the word holy is dedicated to something to the absolute exclusion of everything else. That's dedicated. That's holy. Mikel Park down the end of Darling Point Road is holy because it is dedicated by the government strictly and solely for the work of public recreation. So it cannot be used for anything else, no matter how worthy. Mikel Park cannot, for example, be turned into a car park or have a school built on it. It is holy to recreation, dedicated to something to the absolute exclusion of everything else. And the Israelites were to be holy, not to recreation, but to God. So on the one hand, they were to please him, and on the other, they were to totally ignore all other gods. When the Ten Commandments came, uh, just some days after this event, they started with, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of slavery. You shall have no other gods besides me. And this is the foundation of being holy. And sadly, for the next seven centuries, the Israelites would find it extremely difficult to keep. In fact, they would fail that commandment. And the signs, even back here with Moses, were not all that encouraging, despite and it's hard to sort of believe it, it would seem, from our comfortable position, looking back to their position, living through it. Despite what God had done, prizing them out of the iron grip of the Egyptians and amazingly protecting them ever since and extraordinarily providing food for them in a very hostile environment, they still have their doubts because 
They are so focused on their own needs and their own situation, they seem to be almost oblivious to the almighty, unlimited power and love of this God who saves and provides. You almost want to say, how could be they, they be so blind? Until, of course, we look in a mirror at our own lives. They are so wrapped up in themselves and their problems, they seem to actually overlook God. For instance, just three days after crossing the Red Sea, back in chapter 15 and Miriam's song and the excitement, we read the people complained against Moses because they were short of water. A month later, chapter 16, the whole congregation of the Israelites complained against Moses because now they were hungry. Chapter 17, at the next camp, they again complained, for once more there was no drink. At every stage, the people forgot this extraordinary escape that they had just been given from slavery, and instead they were complaining. Of course, at each stage, God came to the party over and over again, as he had promised to protect them, but the penny was slow to drop for them. Despite what had already happened, the nation's faith was still weak and as soon as they were being stretched personally, the rebellious spirit rose to the surface and they complained over and over and over because their focus was on themselves and their situation and their struggle. Their focus was not on God and his power and his promise and his performance and his record and his runs on the board. They were wanting a problem-free life so that they perhaps did not have to have faith. They did not then have to depend on God if things were so good and simple and straightforward. How very ordinary and normal and even how very us. But of course, that's not at all the way to be a holy nation. Now, in the New Testament, Peter writes to his Christian readers, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people. This is deliberately the same term as God used of Israel. The church today is the new Israel. What God was expecting from the people of Israel in Moses' day is precisely what he's expecting from all of us today. Nothing less. Because in Jesus, he has saved us and provides for us. Without God's intervention, the Israelites would never have escaped from their very efficient slave masters. Without Jesus' death for us on the cross, we would never have escaped from the results of our sin, the results which we could not shake off any more than the Egyptians could shake off their slave masters. Because we can't wipe them out. We can't forgive ourselves. We are their slaves until Jesus takes our place, pays for our sins, releases us from our slavery. So now, we, the church, are the holy nation. We are called to do everything the Lord calls us to do. Being holy means deliberately and conscientiously obeying God's instructions and trusting him to provide what we need. But our society is so self-absorbed 
it's no wonder that faith is scarce, even in us. Now, life is not about us. It's about being holy for God. It's why we exist. It's the source of peace. Which of these two descriptions best describes you, do you think? Which picture sounds more like you? I live my life pretty, res I live my pretty respectable life, uh, following my conscience, mostly, and earnestly calling on God when I have a serious problem. Or I regularly ask God if he has something he wants me to hear or to change or to take up. One way is life in the comfortable rut. It's where the, the, the Israelites of Moses' day would like to have been. And the other way is part of being the holy nation where God wants us to be. Sometimes great grace is followed by the receiver delighting the giver and sometimes it is not. I've received amazing and great grace and so have you. Am I following this grace by delighting the giver or by disappointing him? Am I, like young Gunther, following his benefactor's vision or am I more like the football club which quickly forgot the vision of its benefactor? Are you deliberately, actively living as part of the holy nation? Because what a privilege. Live it with delighted zeal. It's what you were made for. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at www.stmarksdp.org to subscribe to our new episodes, browse more resources and find more information about the community of St Mark's.